Making sure technology is secure is really hard. The security community hosts some unusual sounding and counterintuitive events to help make sure that the world's technology is safer and more secure. How does practicing to be a hacker help? Why would you attack something you're trying to defend? When is paying hackers to find vulnerabilities in your software a good idea? In this episode, we'll discuss what CTFs, penetration tests, and bug bounties are, and why they're great tools for improving cybersecurity. Uh, with me, I have Scott Shreve uh, and Brian McCord. Scott, Brian, Hello. welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you, Josh. Great. Well, uh, I know that uh, both of you have really extensive histories in cybersecurity, um, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know for lay people who try to understand what it is that cybersecurity professionals do, there's this soup of really weird sounding terms um, that are uh, kind of off-putting to newcomers. And those are reflected in, I think, some pretty counterintuitive practices for how we try to make systems more secure. So I think maybe we'll just start off with this, uh, this question of what is a, a CTF, a capture the flag? Um, and Brian, maybe, uh, I don't know if you want to kind of explain uh, your experience with CTFs, and I know you led uh, Shift5's effort in uh, in Hackaset, so maybe we'll start there. Sure. So uh, CTF stands for Capture the Flag, and it's basically a chance for everybody to get their hands dirty, right? So you've got the defenders who've been building a defensive network for a while. You've got the attackers who've been practicing attacking this, and they're like, hey, we've built something for a company, let's test it out. So you can actually do this as an on-ramp to doing further penetration tests, but more often than not, it takes the form of a competition where a bunch of people want to practice their skills for IT cybersecurity by actually attacking networks. So there tend to be uh, two different styles. There's a Jeopardy style, which is kind of like broken down into a lot of smaller questions. So you'll see this in things like um, the Hackaset competition that the Air Force and DDS put on. You also see it with like the DEF CON uh, qualifiers. And the idea is that there's a bunch of different categories and the teams that are put together uh, get to start answering questions in each category. And as somebody solves a question in the category, more questions open up. So basically the more questions you solve, and the fewer other teams that have solved those questions, the more points you get and the people with the most points at the end win, right? And then you have attack and defend sort of scenarios. And so these are, you get a network, every other team gets a network, you have to put some services on it, like let's say an email server or an FTP server or various other sort of web services. And you actually have to uh, defend it while other teams are trying to attack your services and you're attacking theirs. So it's sort of like a game of paintball, right? Like you've got your base, you've got your flags and the way that you know somebody else succeeded is they can exploit through those services and get a piece of data that they exfiltrate back to their team and show the moderator saying like, hey, I've made it into the internal layers of their network just like I wanted to and I've retrieved this data back so I get some points. So really at the end of the day, these CTFs are built so that defenders can practice defending against real attackers. The attackers can practice their craft uh, against real defenders in real time. And everybody gets to not just talk about this stuff in a classroom, but get their hands dirty doing it. Awesome. And uh, Scott, I know that you've run you know, security operations centers uh, through, through a lot of your career. And, and, and security operations centers or SOCs are... Um, 
populated with analysts and folks that are trying to defend a particular piece of infrastructure. So it sounds to me like there's a lot of analogies between how you run a SOC and um, kind of like what the defensive part of yeah. a CTF looks like. Yeah, there can be. So it, it's kind of interesting. So with, with some of you know my, my past historical larger customers, Sometimes we knew if there was going to be a third-party, you know, security assessment or penetration test going on the network. Uh, sometimes we didn't. Sometimes I would know, but I certainly wasn't going to tell my team because I want to. I, I want to see how on the ball they are <laughs> during this. But also, so it's it, it's half a measurement of analyst skill and half a measurement of the tools and controls that you have in place that'll generate the right data um, and interpreting that data on you know on whatever the character characteristics of that attack are. So, you know, you have hard things to detect, like somebody's just doing something simple like a port scan, uh, but they're doing it really low and really slow. It's pretty difficult to detect. I, I, don't, I don't care what tool you're using, but uh, there's definitely similarity between the whole uh, defense side of a capture the flag event and a, you know, managed, at least in the managed security uh, services arena at the security operations center. Yeah, and, and Brian, I know um, back when we were at uh, the military academy together, um, the computer science department every year would participate in the cyber defense exercise, right? So these sorts of things are happening at college with um, people who are thinking about getting into cybersecurity. Uh, but they're also, um, you know, at, when, at Chip Five, we we sponsored a, a team to participate in uh, in Hackasat. So I don't know, maybe um, if you could uh, talk a little bit about how that experience went, because you you led that effort. Right. So uh, you're right, Shift 5 this last year participated in the Hackasat event uh, hosted by the Air Force and DDS. And the whole idea was that uh, the government wanted to open up to hackers the idea of what could malicious actors do to our satellites uh, if we're not paying good attention and trying to defend these things, right? Like, what is in the realm of the possible? And I think before I get into the specifics about that, like, one of the things they try to do, which I think is a hallmark of a good capture the flag, is set it up so that you need a very broad array of skills to actually do well in the competition. So a good capture the flag is not just about one subset where you're just trying to reverse engineer software, or you're just trying to find that port during a port scan so you can run an exploit that's known, but it's doing the entire kill chain from knowing nothing all the way to getting deep into the network and causing effects on that network. Like all the components data. of a grid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so that you could actually replicate this in real life, right? So uh, when we put our team together, we put it together of just Shift 5 employees is uh, mostly a way to have a good time and work on our skills, but also to kind of let people in Shift 5 with different skill sets all get together. The software guys, the hardware guys, some guys who study uh, you know, ham radios as a hobby on the weekends and put all that together because that's what they did, right? So there were some questions in this Jeopardy style board that were all about like, hey, just solve this code. Like, you know, we've got an array, like a, a comma separated value list that represents a star map. We need you to run an algorithm on it that finds certain patterns very quickly. And you have to do it quick enough. Otherwise, like the computer moves on and you're not succeeding in this competition, you gotta go faster. And there are other problems where it's like, hey, you need to know the physics of how to track a polar satellite across the arc you know, of a window of space during certain times of the day and like actually know some essentially a little bit of mechanical engineering, a little bit of physics, like how do ground stations track satellites? No kidding, right? And then there are a lot of questions about um, different technologies on the satellite itself. How do you interpret 
the serial data bus that connects all the different components, you know, the communications components with the power components, with the uh, payload components, et cetera, on a satellite so that you can get the satellite to talk amongst itself out in space and then communicate that down to the ground station. So as we were going about this, uh, you know, we had to take a divide and conquer approach because some questions focused on particular skill sets and we wanted to apply the right people to the right skills. So it was kind of a management and um, how do you coordinate amongst many teams with different tasks to kind of put together an entire kill chain so you can start basically knowing nothing, then get aimed onto a satellite, walk your communications up to the satellite, mess with the firmware and software running on the satellite in order to have hardware effects. And that's kind of where their Jeopardy questions uh, ultimately led us to. And we ended up doing pretty well. We were in a 66 out of a little less than 1300 teams. So about the top 5% and we were, uh, we were just having a good time. You know, it was like, uh, it was great fun. I don't think people slept as much as they wanted to that weekend, <laughs> but uh you know, we, we still have some stories to talk about it and some people who still to this day are frustrated with some of the questions and <laughs> upset like about how it's working. assembling sort of the, the technical A-team. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was an insane experience. I think within a 48-hour period of very little sleep, I worked on some like astrophysics problems. There was like crypto <laughs> There was like data science stuff. Um, Which so is it's awesome like, because, you know, astrophysics doesn't come into play a lot with uh, <laughs> It sure doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And they warned us about that at first. They're like, hey, this is not going to be a normal CTF for all you need to know is the Cali tool set. Yeah, that wasn't, one of, the correct, wasn't yeah. one of the criteria I used to hire my analyst. <laughs> right. But I mean, I think this is exactly the point, right, is so the, the whole reason Defense Digital Service yeah. put this on is to raise interest in the security community around a, a set of technologies and tools and practices that up until now haven't really gotten a lot of scrutiny. And so um, kind of culturally inside the InfoSec community, these CTFs are a really great way of attracting really super talented people to wrap their brains around a set of problems that maybe they would never think about before. Um, but they can also be pretty lucrative. I mean, there are um, there are like CTF teams that are professional like CTF teams. Like and so sports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's like they're like professional esports kind of meets Jeopardy kind of infosec edition. Um, and I mean, there's there's really substantial cash awards for for these for these teams. So um, you know, some of the you know, I know Brian, you mentioned we we did pretty well. I think as a sort as a kind of amateur team, um, but there were some teams on there that were just flying at lightning speed. Um, yes, <laughs> and apparently they I were mean, like professional CTF. Well, some of these teams have worked together. Like reading the bios, some of them have worked together since 2012 or 2013. You know, they've been going to CTFs once every few months because there's whole websites set up. Where where you can say what's the next big CTF. They've got a whole you know, mindset yeah. about what it means yeah. to execute. So these, these guys have been knowledge. hacking stuff for a decade, right? So yeah. <laughs> so there's people who really love it. Yeah. They, it's they I have mean sponsors like Cisco and stuff on there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's 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 insane. I mean, um, I think you know, I, you go around on GitHub and there are toolkits that are dedicated not to like penetration testing or defending networks, but actually for CTFs. So it's like, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of taken on a life of its own where um, it's, it's its own profession, but I, I'm I wondering think, if that's yeah. going to dumb it down a little bit though. Right. You know, in all seriousness, totally. suddenly I, suddenly I, all my CTF teams are basically using what we would in the back of the day refer to as like script kitty tools. Cause just, totally. 
Well, another good hallmark of CTS is that um, they want everybody to learn what the answer was at the end. So just for the listeners out there, you know, um, the Hackaset has published as open source all the code they use to run the actual problems out onto uh, GitHub. So that's still open as far as I know, as well as some of the final problems. So you can go get like a Kimu emulator, emulate some satellite firmware and actually run these problem sets yourself. So you didn't need to participate at the time because they love making sure that everybody understands at the end, like this is what we did. Uh, the winning teams do whole write-ups on like, this is exactly how we step through our process. Because uh, there is a kind of a community spirit to it about like, let's make sure everyone learns from this and gets better for the next one um, so that we have some real competition going. I just want all the TCB dumps for all, every one of those networks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's uh, that's a perfect segue into kind of the next topic around penetration tests. Um, so while CTFs kind of have a fun practice kind of flavor to them. Um, penetration tests are something that professionals need to use all the time. Um, Scott, I know, you know, in your years as a, as a kind of overseeing socks and, and, and mentoring analysts, um, you've been on the receiving end, I think of quite a few I, penetration I've been on the giving end too. And now it's on the giving <laughs> end. So maybe, um, you could, you know, for, for kind of a lay person, uh, it might not be intuitive why, you attack something that you're supposed to be defending. Um, maybe you could um, tell us a little bit about why do companies do penetration tests, what sorts of penetration tests there are, and kind of what results you're sure, hoping sure. to get out when, of them. When I think of it as the service offering, so so before um, I spent a lot of time in built out security operations centers, so one of the companies that I was working for, we basically did security assessments to include things like source code review and penetration testing and what have you. But generally, when you're hired to do a penetration test, it's uh, to uh, help instill confidence on whatever the system owner is um, that somebody can't just kind of arbit arbitrarily or on purpose um, cripple, break in, steal, do what have you to the system that you're protecting. Um, I like to think of penetration tests. Um, a lot of people will uh, the label of what I call like components of a full-blown penetration test is sort of individual test, whether it's social engineering, or I'm going to do an actual network penetration, or I'm going to do this application interface. Uh, to me, it's all a penetration test, and you just choose to what level of detail you go to and what uh, attack service that you're trying to exploit. But if I have to think of like, when I think of types of penetration tests, it's all a matter of what you know and what you don't know to begin with. So you've got like that black box penetration test, I know nothing. So maybe somebody's, you know, besides doing all the network recon, maybe somebody's dumpster diving or, or whatever it is they're doing to get <laughs> as much inner information as you can around this thing that you're going to attack. Then you've got like the white box where you kind of know how this thing's built and how it's set up. And it's really just to um, go demonstrate, if possible, that you can get in, you can do some predefined thing. There's always rules of engagement that you work out with the customer first to ensure you don't take down their payroll system or what have you. And then, uh, you know, when you've shown somebody that you can do a thing and you can evidence that, then the real value in the penetration test isn't, isn't necessarily that I found some hole that you didn't know. It's I found a hole and here's what you can do to either fix that hole or mitigate the risk of that hole existing. And that's, that's sort of my, my nickel 
summary of what, what I think about penetration tests and the different types and what they're used for. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it, it makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way. It's almost like, well, how do you know how well you're defending something uh, mm-hmm. unless you try to kind of kick the tires a little bit, um, uh, you know, and I think it's also been effective, Brian, f- for you at Shift 5, right? Like when we're looking at a, a fleet asset and saying, okay, we're going to tailor a solution for this thing. Um, you know, oftentimes a customer wants to know, okay, well, how is it, how well does it work? Like, like, show me, show me what this looks like. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, at a high level, what our general philosophy is about um, penetration testing for, for customers and how we approach that in the operational technology domain. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, follow my analogy here. So I'm an army guy. That's where I come from in my uh, previous life. And, you know, if someone handed me a set of body armor and said, trust me, this stops bullets. And I asked like, well, has anyone ever like tried to shoot one at it before? And they're like, no, no, that's fine. Like the math works out on paper. It'll be good. Like you would kind of be like a little less certain that when you go out there and, you know, somebody wants to shoot at you, there's enemies out there, uh, you'd be less certain in that body armor, right? So that's why every like body armor shop in the world has at the end of their production line, some quality control guys who actually shoot bullets at the body armor, right? And see, does the bullet go through? And I think that's really what a lot of different groups, whether it's military or commercial, are trying to get out of their pen tests, right? Like, they spend all this money on IT or OT support and defense, and they want to know when it comes down to it, when the malicious actor shows up, is this going to stop uh, their attacks from damaging what's important to us? And so the problem that we see in the OT space is that computers aren't just on computers anymore, right? There are computers just in your desktop or your laptop, but now there are computers in your car, your trucks, your boats, your planes, your trains, your satellites, your clothes. People got clothes with computers in them and microcontrollers like light up lights in certain ways and show Wi-Fi signal on your shirt. And so there's computers in your toasters and that's how like botnets get started, computers in your fridge to tell you when you're running out of groceries. Uh, There's computers everywhere. So what we like to do is kind of um, offer different groups uh, kind of flavors of a pen test, right? So there's kind of like the overall Uh, what we call like a cyber survivability risk assessment, right? Like we can do a lot of stuff on paper and just say, tell me everything about your device. Uh, Give me the documentation, show me the code, kind of explain to me how this fits in in the network. And we'll use our expertise and say, these are the concerns I have, right? So it's somewhat like an architect going in and looking at the plans for a building saying, I'm really unsure about this support beam right here. It doesn't look like it'll hold much weight. It's gonna break if you do anything different, right? And that's kind of us looking around saying, here are the the chinks in your armor. Then there's actual penetration tests, right? Like what Scott's used to and what they're talking about, where we go in and get our hands dirty and we act like a malicious actor to come in and try to break these technologies. Now, uh, kind of the whole reason of Shift 5 is that a lot of these operational technologies were not built and updated like IT technologies were. They were built to function. So the protocols were designed in the late 70s, the early 80s. They might have been updated a little bit in the late 80s, early 90s. And as long as they work and the machines at the factory keep worrying or the ship keeps sailing or the car doesn't stop, uh, then everyone's good to go, right? 
And so things that are very common and expected in the IT space, like authentication or encryption or verification, yeah, they just do not exist in the OT space. And I think big players, you know, like the Department of Defense through their National Defense Authorization Acts um, and like kind of the government as a whole is realizing, oh, yeah, there are computers on these things. These computers are talking to each other over all kinds of protocols that we don't take nearly as much attention to as the IT space. So uh, what could happen, right? So that's a lot of the questions that we get is uh, when we go talk to people and be like, hey, I think you might have concerns on this. Do you want us to come look at it? Sometimes they just don't believe us, right? They're like, hey, what? We've never heard of an attack on this sort of vehicle. This like can't this possibly type of train, happen. Right? This can't <laughs> possibly happen. So part of what we do for Shift 5 Labs, kind of the uh, vulnerability research arm of Shift 5 is show them, well, actually it could. Let me do the pen test on your software, show you exactly how we did it, show you how we you know, turned off the train or got the plane to you know, roll it, take off or do all these things um, and show you why you should care and why you need to buy you know, cyber body armor to put over your important parts. <laughs> People are gonna be shooting cyber bullets at you, if you will. I know we laugh at that phrase, but <laughs> to keep the I, I, analogy going. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if for the listeners, referring to operational technology and we absolutely perform on operational technology but shift five is kind of specialized in this sliver of operational technology so when you say operational technology half the folks in the world are ics SCADA, you know or <laughs> refineries <laughs> or what have you or and, toasters yeah, yeah or toasters yeah. <laughs> or room humidifiers. yeah iot iot for sure and, and, a, and, a, and a lot of what we're working on you know large vehicle platforms as brian mentioned satellites that sort of thing, just for sort of clarification to somebody who's kind of stumbled upon this, may wonder exactly what we're referring to when we say OT. It's yeah, a little bit different. That's a great point. Yeah, we, I mean, we say we say planes, trains, and tanks, so our yeah. grandparents can like tell their friends what they do. You know, exactly. what we do. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a really interesting concept of like selling the shields and the spears. You know, um, there are other. Uh, models for um, people who demonstrate vulnerabilities, uh, other business models for people who demonstrate vulnerabilities in in software. Um, and this really vibrant community has has grown up around this concept of bug bounties, um, which is kind of a, an offshoot of this, where instead of having a team dedicated to um, penetration testing a network or a, a, a you know an, an IT infrastructure or in our you know in Shift 5's case uh, an OT platform or a fleet asset, uh, you'll say, hey, look, we have this website that we use um, to process credit card transactions or to hold your Bitcoin, um, and we're interested in having the community in a controlled way um, try to subvert this system. And if you find a vulnerability of a particular specification, we'll pay you. So, um, you know, it reminds me of this is like a British Cobra uh, problem. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Uh, so like when the <laughs> British soldiers were um, occupying India, uh, they had this like big Cobra, this might be totally apocryphal, by the way, but um, they had this, uh, this like Cobra problem, and they would pay for Cobra uh, heads, basically, to like, um, encourage people to tamp down on this population. Um, so, so <laughs> The, um, uh, the 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 um, civilian population would breed cobras <laughs> and like slaughter them to get paid. So anyway, it, it kind of like reminds me a bit of of that, but um, it makes a lot of sense. So you have these uh, these 
uh, really talented people who know how to penetration test a, a web application, for example. Uh, and you'll say, okay, look, like this is the service. Here's the sort of scope of where you're allowed to try to attack this thing. Um, but you know, basically, come at me, and if if if, you, if you're successful, we'll pay you. Um, so, I mean, it's just a really interesting uh, model, especially given like you know most is like Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world, right? Most most companies are uh, are software companies these days, whether they want to be or not. And so if you've got software, as we all know, um, you have to worry about cybersecurity vulnerabilities, but maybe that's not a skill set that you hire for, or you know how to like a, a, attract talent for and, and retain and nurture inside of an organization. So um, things like bug bounties, I think are really, really helpful to um, to allowing the community to help make systems more secure. Um, so uh, one really interesting, uh, we keep going back to defense digital service, but one really interesting um, effort that's happened is the uh, the hack the Pentagon um, effort that hacker ones put together um, so uh, there, there were I don't know uh, Brian maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of security or insecurity uh, of, <laughs> of IT systems in in the government um, but uh, this this was one really interesting um, effort that they, the the Pentagon put on through this uh, this this third party service hacker one yeah so um, some quick like notes about hack the pentagon right so this originally was done in 2016 uh, as uh, secretary of defense ash card at the time wanted to basically get the commercial sector to help uh, the department of defense improve their cybersecurity because they knew cyber was coming into its own they were standing up cyber branches to different military services and they were worried about how it defended are our networks really, right? Because there are other nation state actors out there who are talented and they're hungry, right? So they started this uh, competition. They put a bunch of uh, their software up on publicly accessible nets. So you signed up as security research and then you got the hack it stuff. And here's where the interesting facts come in. The first vulnerability was found in 13 minutes. It took hackers 13 minutes to find something in DOD software that was breakable, write a report on it, and turn it in. Uh, for the next really few days, a new report of a vulnerability came in about every 30 minutes after that. So like, I think there was something around like 1400 people who were signed up for this, who were on and off kind of doing it at their leisure. They ended up finding 200 different bugs and were overall paid about $75,000, which honestly is on the cheap side of this. Yeah. So once DOD realized like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like this could be a real problem if with only a few hours these guys are finding this much what happens if a nation state with years of time and like the top tier talent really starts to play with this right right now we're a little scared what um something that might not be intuitive to people that uh, aren't programmers or information security folks is like, well i guess what is a bug and then how is there a relationship between a bug and a security vulnerability right so um Basically, a bug in a general sense is just uh, a piece of code not working as the programmer intended, right? It could be something just accidental. You know, you add one and one, it gets three because, you know, somebody fat fingered something. Um, or it could be something that's a little harder to find, you know, like it's, uh, you know, your clock is going too fast as you're trying to do timed events. And for some reason, things get out of sync all the time. Um, because of like an algorithm you wrote that was wrong, but it's not obvious to what the mistake is. 
but when it becomes a vulnerability is when somebody can like use that bug to force the system to do things it was not intended to do. For example, if you can use, you know, your addition bug to get uh, somebody's bank account doubled, right? You know, you add the $100 deposit and now it's $200 new in the bank account, that's a problem, right? And so these vulnerabilities, uh, especially in the security space for the kind of people who have critical systems that wanna pay money for these researchers to come in, these pieces of code are running critical systems or critical functions that have real effects. So for example, in the IT space, it's running your bank accounts, your stock trading, your communications for your nuclear C2 networks, those sort of things. Uh, but in the OT space, it's doing things, you know, like running the engine on the submarine, right? If the engine turns off and you start running out of oxygen in the submarine, it's a problem. Or it's running the uh, control surfaces on an aircraft. You know, your computer turns off, can't turn left, right, go up and down, crash to a mountain, it's a problem, right? So as these vulnerabilities are attached to the software that runs more and more secure things, the desire for somebody to come in and help solve problems is bigger. But as you noted before, um, a lot of these companies, you know, like, hey, I'm an engine company, right? I design jet engines. I don't do a ton of cyber, so I don't have a whole cyber department to come in and go over all the software or the firmware that was designed to be put on my digital controller. Not to imagine smaller companies might even outsource it. Like, so your software might be coming from India or from, you know, somewhere in Europe um, and be put on your machines and like, hey, it performs your requirements. You put this data in, you get this data out but what else is it doing? So they like to hire uh, third-party consultants because one, uh, it can be cheaper, right? Because hiring these kind of people full-time is expensive because it's a very niche skill set. It takes a lot of time to train and um, it's just hard to do well, right? The second thing is it's a new set of eyes. So if you tend to be consumed with building your thing, like you're the guy coding something, then uh, when it comes time to look at it through a different lens, say, how do I break this? you tend to be kind of wrapped up in what you're doing. You've already got kind of a model in your mind of how it works and you t it's harder to think outside the box if you built it in the first place. So companies like to bring in other groups who are like have seen a million of these things and broken most of them, have them try to break into it and see if this really does hold up to the kind of attacks that you're gonna see in the real world. Because with things like Shodan, uh, things, you know, like, tool suites like Kali out there and stuff, if your device is connected to the internet or a communications network or really anything that allows remote data to come in, somebody's gonna be poking at it and interested, especially if it's tied to some sort of critical function that somebody can ransom, somebody can uh, you know, turn on or off and heat a battle, uh, somebody that you know can just do it for recognition, right? Like to recognize a cause like hackers are want to do. Um, and I think companies are really starting to wake up to what that means and that they have computers in their stuff too. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point, Brian. Like not every company is forward thinking about cybersecurity and may not do things like host bug bounties or contracts with people to do penetration tests. Yeah, it's just tests. maturity, really. Right. It's not a conscious decision that you don't know what they don't know. Right hackers are going to hack on stuff. And so like you're, you'll, like Brian was kind of alluding to, you'll, you'll see these, sometimes you see these responsible disclosures. I don't know, um, Scott, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how the responsible disclosure process works. Like what is it and, and why is it designed the way it is? So in my view, responsible disclosure is 
hey, somebody has identified something that other folks can exploit to some bad effect, and they discreetly get with the vendor or the owner of that thing and explain that to them. To me, that's responsible disclosure. Um, what, I, what I think is really interesting is if I think about things like, like bug bounties, they've been fairly popular for the past 10 or 15 years, but prior to that, everybody squirreled away their little toys, and especially for folks who were in the penetration testing game, and you brought out your bag of tricks to you know, successfully penetrate. So now, now that we've kind of changed the way we think about uh, informing folks when things are bad, and it's, and it's not so much of a, these are mine and I shall hold them forever, <laughs> you know, close <laughs> to me, nobody will be as crafty as I am. Um, now that I think we've kind of changed that paradigm where I'm kind of curious to see if you had some of these old school folks um, who perhaps back in the day, that was their hacking bag of tricks, uh, being a bit more active on things like bug bounties or just general, let's go be a good guy on the internet. I'm going to go find this Microsoft. You know, there used to be such uh, friction between all these big companies and sort of the hacker community. And I think that's going away now. So I'm hoping there'll be a lot more opportunity for responsible disclosure to, uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot of good examples of that over the past 10 years and it's only getting better, but it's a, it's definitely different from when I first started. Totally. Completely different <laughs> attitude around it. It's like, oh, hell no, you're not getting that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's I a different that for something. Right, right. Right. And and the other thing is, you know, to be fair to the, the people that were scrolling these things away, I don't think that there was a really friendly environment. When no, you, no, you know, no, when you wasn't. email, yeah, you email Oracle, you're like, Hey, I found a remote code execution. In, <laughs> you're like, going your to core product. Yeah. They're like, Hey, you violated, especially Oracle, yeah. but uh, uh, Hey, you, you violated copyright. Like you, you're not supposed to be reverse engineering this stuff. Like this is against the license. Yeah. Um, Next year door, door gets kicked in. That's right. Yeah. 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 Give me laptop um and so, so we've gotten into a place now that's really interesting where you've got um you know big corporations like google will have um like google's project zero i mean those guys have probably done m more than most groups i can think of to secure the internet um and the idea is that uh, you'll have security researchers that'll be kicking the tires on something, reverse engineering something, um, taking a look at whether APIs match documentation, doing dynamic analysis, all these techniques. And when they find things, um, they'll they'll produce a report and uh, quote unquote responsibly disclose it to the organization that makes that hardware, makes that software, um, so that they have an opportunity to fix it. Uh, and the idea is you give them a time window. So you say, hey, you have 30 days, you have 90 days, whatever, to fix this. And the reason that you put a firm deadline on it is because um, you want to make sure that it gets fixed. So if you don't put a timeline on it, what's happened historically is organizations that maybe aren't so forward thinking about cybersecurity, like, yeah, whatever, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, it's not a problem for us right now because you haven't disclosed it. Whereas if I say, hey, look, I'll work with you to help fix this thing, but like this blog post is going. This blog post is going live in 30 days, uh, whether you fix it or not. And so, if you want to have a, you know, a, what you know, what's called a zero day, something that um, doesn't have a patch for it, that's uh, out in the wild and people are subverting your software, and you want to get a reputation for that, that's on you. But um, you know, you have 30 days basically. Yeah. Yeah. And the the whole process can be very controversial, right? Because there's um, kind of two schools of thought. One that is kind of winning, I think, is what you and Scott are onto, and that companies need to know about this stuff so they can do something about it. And that way, everyone wins, right? Like white hat hackers can help uh, find these flaws. They can get some sort of incentive, aka payment, for doing it so that they have a chance to continue to do so. 
They can notify the yeah. companies who can make the fixes and everyone's good. And there's also other schools of thought, right. right? There's other schools of thought about like, hey, maybe we don't want to go around saying what all the flaws are because that draws like flies to the honey, all the malicious actors, right? If in the same way, if you sit out someone sit outside someone's house and we're like, hey, his front door is locked, but his back door is open and put a big sign in their yard, you know, you may have a few more criminals come around, like seeing if they could scoop anything out of the house, right? So I think um, there's still a lot of controversy today about the best way to do this. Um, and there's, especially if a company is non-responsive, you know, there's a big question. If you ever take like um, certified ethical hacker or different, you know, like, um, uh, security certifications through like offensive security or something. One of the big questions that comes up in like ethical discussions is if a company doesn't want to play ball, they either don't believe you that you found something or they're like, you better not share that. Think of all like, you know, the risk that would put on the population or whatever, or they just don't respond. Then what do you do? Kind of what is your ethical need to share this? Um, even though it might, yeah, like be putting tools in the hands of the bad guys. And I think that's, um, one of the more complicated topics when it comes to doing these pen tests and these uh, you know, hacking events is if you find something big and it's not so simple as like uh, the company whose onus it is to deal with it is gonna fix it. Thank you so much, here's your money. Like, please help us get in the future. If it's not that easy, uh, then what do you do? And I think that's something like- Yeah, that's a rough- Worthy of continued discussion, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also really important for um, modern software where so much of what we consume is SaaS, it's software as a service. So things that are more or less continually updated, or we have a license for them. Um, and since the move towards kind of having a relationship with software as like a, a licensed continual basis, it gives software engineers and people that produce those services, the opportunity to update things quickly which has like really important security ramifications. But if you're responsibly disclosing something, if you're, if you're not responsibly disclosing vulnerabilities and they never get patched, we're not gonna be able to use that like innovation to help make things more secure, I think. And one other thing that's been interesting is something you know we've been working on too at Shafib is um, using security research, uh, which we do you know, pro bono, you don't get compensated, generally speaking, unless there's a bug bounty uh, for doing security research on, on random things <laughs> that you're interested in. Um, but I think it's really, number one, it's really important for the community that we, we find them before the bad guys do. And so we can, we can fix them and make, make the world more secure. Um, but it also uh, creates an opportunity for uh, for some of the talented folks uh, that that work at Shift Five and 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 um, and other companies that have labs organizations that do security research uh, to have a twenty percent project where they can hack on something that they think is really cool, uh, and then they have a platform for for discussing it and have, creating content around it that's engaging and and giving back to the community. So um, that's been that's been I think uh, really. Uh, promising area of cybersecurity uh, where there's there's always so much stuff that you can point out that like, oh, that's on fire, this is on fire. Right, but yeah. I think in generally, like we're, we're headed in a really good direction. And I can give kind of a teaser for the future of some of Shift 5 and Shift 5 Labs work in that. I don't want to put the cart before the horse, so I'll leave names out of this. But we were talking with different groups and even as so far up as like the state and federal level um, where there's realization that, hey, there's all these critical systems that the populace counts on for example like medical devices or ports or airports and in you know in recent years there's been all these attacks like 
hey, there's the uh, Hartfield Airport attack, you know, in Georgia, where a ransomware basically knocked out a lot of services for a couple of days. Um, what happens if something like that happens to the airport again, but bigger? What happens in a port? Like, what if you can't use the cranes to uh, move uh, containers off ships and do things like that, and somebody holds these at ransom, or even worse, right, attempts to destroy or disrupt these yeah. sort of things? Um, so there's been more talk at higher levels about, hey, we need security experts to come in and take a look at these OT systems, like, and have them always being, like, pounded out, right, like, constantly stress-tested so that we find stuff, you know, before the quote-unquote bad guys do, right? You know, we're trying to get involved in that game saying, like, hey, we've spent a long time now looking very closely at OT systems that aren't well addressed by a lot of the broader market right now. And these things are running everywhere in all kinds of different technologies that you at the state and federal level level definitely care about. Um, so we're trying to work more of those kind of combinations where we sometimes can even front, you know, the labor or the money to help look at this stuff originally and let them know like, hey, these are the kind of problems you're going to run into if you're not careful and help, let us help work with you to shore up your cyber defenses because you know we use those airports too. We use those ports. You, you uh, we need use to treat those those platforms <laughs> just just like a responsible company treat treats their own SaaS platform. Mm-hmm. You know there, there's going to be regular pinging on by a third party to ensure the security posture of that thing, whether that's a SaaS platform or, like you said, it's a crane on a ship. You know, right? <laughs> need to need to think of it the same way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what we've seen in like the OT and fleet space is, um, you know, the way engineers think about solving problems is pretty universal, more or less across different kinds of industries and, and verticals. And so people have made the same mistakes um, uh, <laughs> over the past thirty years in OT that they made in IT, you know, fifty years ago. And so. I think you're going to see the same narrative arc play out over these things. You know, we design stuff for robustness, not security. And then we're, we're going to have all these legacy assets out there for decades. And we're going to have to, um, we're going to have to figure out ways of bolting security onto the sides of these, uh, of these platforms. Yeah. Um, the the difference know. is, is that the mediums that they used for that, you can't just go rip out and replace, you know, right. We could change a network topology or, or, or you know, yeah, whatever. that's right. <laughs> I, you know, I rotate my iPhone out every like two or three years or whatever, but like locomotives are out there for decades. So, yeah. um, Ro- you know, rotate I, that Abrams out <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. every, every, every 50, it was a, the B, w- w- there, there's some bombers in the U S fleet that have been around since the fifties, yeah. I think, yeah. um, yeah. you know, they're like, ah, oh, we'll just swap the engines out. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Awesome. Well, I think this has been uh, a great uh, a great discussion. You know, we talked about some of the really w- kind of odd terms that the information security community uses. We talked about CTFs, penetration tests, bug bounties, responsible disclosure, and uh, and why those activities make a lot of sense and how it make the world safer. Where can people find out more about these kinds of things, or how can how can they get involved in doing bug bounties or, or CTF? Maybe we'll kind of wrap up with with some of that. Well, I can say, um, you know, not going like website by website, but just kind of giving you general buckets of places I would go. Is one, uh, there's websites out there that keep 
uh, track of like here's the CTFs in different regions of the country or different places worldwide and like basically a whole calendar year out you can find like where the next big thing is and whether it's in person or remote especially now with uh, COVID-19 remote's very possible for just about all of them so you have an ability to participate and a lot of them are even free right you just got to sign up jump in and you're good to go if you're like, that sounds awesome, but I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm starting from zero. I don't even know how to program in Python or like, you know, a lot of these common tools that you find pop up. There's a lot of classes around. So you can do things the official way. You know, you can go get certifications. So, you know, your CompTIA, your CEH, your uh, Offensive Security, OSCP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can kind of get the classes to build you up. Or honestly, there's a ton of really good like free information out there if you just use Google, man. Like you can Google together a lot of information and people are real passionate about this. So they put their code up on GitHub. They do YouTube videos about how to use these tools. Uh, there's toolkits out there. Like I keep saying Cali, but that's a great one. It's got kind of like tools for every step in the attack chain and you can do it on your own equipment, right? Like if you wanted to- books. Yeah, yeah, like books to read. I mean, Probably you can go out and buy just like- Enough hacking exposed oh, or something right now, yeah. Right, and you can just go buy your own equipment, right? Like, oh, let me go buy a small Raspberry Pi, run a service on it and try to hack it on my own home network. So I'm not yeah. messing with anything Ernie real, not yeah. breaking the law. <laughs> you can work your way up to that. I mean, you know, people sell hack kits for their OBD2 connectors and their car diagnostic port. If you really want to play with kind of the, some of the OT that Shift 5 likes to mess with, those serial data bus protocols and big cyber physical systems. I mean, um, you know, I think yeah, the car the hacker handbook would be like a great start. Oh, yeah. All the tuner guys know all about the ECU on whatever vehicle it is. Yep. 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 So right. um, there's all kinds of places where you can get involved for cheap. And then the, uh, the real downside is it just takes time, man. Like nobody gets there in a day and you've got to like play around with this stuff for months, if not years to really get a feel for it. Um, and that's why these teams have been doing CTS for 10 years because they love it. Every time they do it, they learn something and they get better at it. And like, that's how you really kind of learn everything because they, they would admit freely like, hey, we're still not even close to knowing everything we need to know to succeed at everything. So yeah, one of the great parts to think about all this is that it's cheap to get into <laughs> and, and hard to get off of once you realize you like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it just takes like a stubborn attitude and a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Brian, Scott, uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. And I, uh, I hope this, this discussion was useful to the listeners. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Good conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.